loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Melissa Gould. Melissa's essays have been published in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Hollywood Reporter, BuzzFeed, and more. She's an award-winning screenwriter who's worked on such shows as Bill Nye, The Science Guy, Beverly Hills 90210, Party of Five, and Lizzie McGuire. She lives in Los Angeles, California, and her memoir, Jewish, is available wherever books are sold, and we'll mostly be talking about the book and that experience today. You can find her on Instagram at melissagould under slash author and her website, www.widowish.com. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to have you. You know, some some books, obviously, I read a lot of books to do the podcast, and some books just so stand out and, and touch and move me, and yours is definitely high on that list. I, I just um, resonated so much with your book, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much for such kind words. Absolutely. You know, I think part of it is, uh, obviously, I cover a lot of different experiences of grief on this show, but when uh, when I have a guest who's also lost a spouse, there's something uh, really um, personal about it for me. And yeah, so I've I been totally thinking a lot that. about the loss of of my wife, right? <laughs> at a yeah. young age also. She was 45, I was 42 at the time that she died. Um, and I actually appreciate uh, making contact with that period of my life, which of course has, for me, resulted in a lot, <laughs> including this show. So thank right. you for reminding me of that experience. And let's oh, start there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Let's start there because the uh, one difference between your experience and mine is that um, I was preparing for that loss. For She was supposed to die for almost a decade, and um, you were not at all prepared for that loss. Um, and it really stood out, just the shock of it. So could you start just sharing what happened with Joel, your, your husband, and um, you know what led you to this widowish world that we inhabit? <laughs> Yes, I will. And um, I appreciate everything that you're saying. Um, you know, it's funny. I, of course, now know so many widows. Um, and, you know, you, you play that game with yourself. Like, which is worse? Knowing that your spouse is going to be imminently dying or is it worse when they leave for work one day and drop dead and never come home? Mm. Um, it's, I mean, either age old, the age old problem with comparing griefs, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, and also the, the, the issue of like, what if, you know, mm -hmm. like, what if I had gone to the hospital sooner? What if, um, 
we had gone, you know, to that doctor appointment we had been putting off for, for months. But regardless, I'll, I'll answer your question. Um, so my husband, Joel, um, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis with MS um, years prior to to really um, years prior to his death, basically. Um, but, you know, with a diagnosis like MS, which is an autoimmune disease, um, you know, we had to make some life adjustments. Um, but the truth is he really was managing his MS. He was on a, a great course of medication. He adjusted his lifestyle. We both did. Um, but after years of really living with MS, he started becoming symptomatic in ways that he hadn't been previously. And we found out that medication sort of has a lifespan and the meds that he had been on successfully for so many years really stopped being as effective. Hmm. So it was during this transition from a really good medication to a new one that he was, he was really off for, for a matter of months, almost, almost a, a full year. Um, the new meds were just not kicking in. And as a course of treatment and protocol, the doctors prescribed um, intravenous, um, what's it called, like infusions that were meant to sort of bridge the gap of the old meds and the new meds, mm-hmm. that it just wasn't kicking in. And But it was during these infusions that Joel was told to stay home. And much like how we were you know, very recently dealing with COVID, he was not meant to really leave the house, interact with other people, other than my daughter and I, who were washing our hands diligently, um, and the nurse who was coming over um, every day to give him these infusions. Um, But he was, we were sort of on lockdown. Again, Uh. this was years before COVID. Um, So part of what we understood as staying at home was the backyard was fine. It was, it was our house. It was private. Joel loved being in the backyard. He loved gardening. Um, and it was several weeks, almost a month after he received these infusions that he came down with flu-like symptoms. And after several days of- Which had to, high... which had to be crazy given that he hadn't been going anywhere. Like it was how strange. did he catch and... anything, right? <laughs> Yeah, it it was strange. But again, I think because we had grown accustomed to MS and it being somewhat predictable as these autoimmune diseases are and can be, we thought it was perhaps um, a reaction to the new medication, perhaps even a reaction to the infusions he had been receiving. Um, So we weren't panicked. We weren't worried. We just thought this is strange. Um, He and I made the decision together to go to the emergency room. It was a weekend, so we couldn't go to his doctor. Um, We called the doctor's office, of course. They suggested going to the ER because his um, fever was so high. And they admitted him. And he was completely cognizant and mobile and um, completely himself, albeit with a high fever, when we admitted him. And when I went back to the hospital the next day, thinking I would probably be checking him out that afternoon, he was a completely different person. Mm -hmm. And he was out of it in a way that was both scary and unexpected. And the doctors really started scrambling because they must have known that his condition was getting worse. And they understood it in a way that I really didn't. 
Mm-hmm. And suddenly this parade of doctors from infectious disease to um, cardiologists to pulmonologists. I mean, it, it was really an emergency situation and critical. And I did not end up taking him home that day. And the following day, so less than 48 hours after he had been admitted, he fell into a coma. And the doctors were really trying to figure out if this was, in fact, a reaction to the new medication he had started for his MS, or if it was some sort of virus, because it was presenting as a virus. Um, And it took three weeks for the doctors to determine that he had been bitten by a mosquito, most likely during that week of infusions that he was receiving at the house. Um, And the mosquito was carrying West Nile virus. And as crazy and as shocking as it is, that is what my husband died of, Mm. West Nile virus. You know, I know the illness MS fairly well. And um, you don't walk around, you walk around with the expectation it's going to affect the way you live, but not necessarily going to affect your lifespan uh, or um, whether you live. And so you have a really um, poignant combination of you'd already adjusted your life to the unpredictable, but not this part of it, not that something could end his life. I can't imagine you were thinking in those terms, given what I know about that illness. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Cheryl. I mean, Joel and I really learned early on, early into his diagnosis with MS, that it's really a quality of life disease. Exactly what you just said, people don't really die from MS. It absolutely affects the quality of your life, however. So yes, that's what we had been adjusting to, but this was something that you know was really clearly unexpected and, and, and shocking. And even to this day, and it's been you know over seven years when I still talk about it, it's shocking to think that somebody could die of a mosquito bite. <laughs> in this day and age in our country. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a strange thing and it's still surreal to me. Still surreal it may, may never not be, I imagine. And I was thinking about, you know, the way that minds make meaning and all this. Um, my wife's disability fit with her terminal diagnosis, right? Mm. It, it was sort of all one picture, but this is two disparate pictures, even though they're related. I do understand that he was more vulnerable probably to that right. virus because he was on immunosuppressant, you know, all of that, but mm-hmm. still so um, must have felt so sudden and unexpected. Quite, oh, quite, absolutely. quite different from the way that, that I experienced her death, which was so far past when they thought she would live. It was a different kind of shock um, there. And then you're a young person with a 13-year-old and um, trying to figure out what that word widow means. I wonder if you could read a little from your book. Um, I love this this part of the book that's really about, um, are you doing widow, widowhood hood right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, w- I was left out of that loop because at the time there was no widowhood for, for same-sex partners. 
Uh, oh, interesting. I felt yeah. like a widow, and I claimed that word, but I had to really fight to have other per other people see me that way at all. <laughs> so that's right. oh, that's I'm a sure. different kind of wrinkle. But um, can you read that little little part from? Uh, I guess yes. it's from the 18th chapter. Yes. Um, okay. There was an expectation about the widow. Am I sad enough? Is it okay to see me smile? Am I allowed to feel happy? I felt like I was failing at widowhood. I missed my husband, but no one knew that when they looked at me. They just saw a mom with blonde highlights going to yoga, picking up her daughter from school, buying groceries at Trader Joe's. And now I was at a party with a date when I should have been home grieving all alone. I didn't look like a widow. I wasn't acting like a widow, but I felt like a widow. I guess I was just widow-ish. <laughs> so, so wonderful how you came to that way of thinking about it. And I do think there's an age factor there. Um, oh, 100%. And you know... <laughs> obviously, I talked about that in my, in my book and in my memoir, Widow-ish, because that's what I mean when I say I didn't look like a widow. I still don't. And I, I mean, what I, I wrote still applies, which is, you know, I, didn't, I, I don't look like a widow. I don't necessarily act like a widow, but I feel like one every day. It's my reality. Um, and I do think that there is this bias, although it has certainly changed because of COVID, sadly. Um, there are so many more younger widows now. But I think traditionally, when we think of, of a widow, we really do think of like, the little old lady, you know, in dressed in black from head to toe with like a veil and and gray hair and a bun right. and completely keeping her ring on until she dies. And... Yeah, I mean, all of that sort of um, that stereotype, which again I feel like is changing. Um, but that's why I think it was such a disconnect for people, and and it's not something that people would necessarily know when they looked at me and or even you at the time that you lost your person you know it doesn't equate yes. it doesn't equate to our image of widowhood and 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 everything that goes along with that also there's another subtext in my mind which is people don't understand that grief is not depression uh, that they're really different that you can have to me grief is full of feeling in every direction after the first you know very first like stunning blow you can be happy at moments and you do do other things and it doesn't change the fact that you're grieving whatsoever, but it can all be happening at once. And I think yeah. I got from your memoir that that's what your experience was, but not what other people's expectation of you was. That's exactly right. That actually reminds me of a time it was, um, my husband had only been gone for, for like a few weeks. And I went to, um, I, I may have even been going to like a Thanksgiving dinner um, at my in-laws house. And when we walked in, when my daughter and I, who, as you mentioned, was 13 at the time, I burst into tears because I couldn't believe that I was going to Thanksgiving without my husband. And I was going to his parents' house. And um, I burst into tears <laughs> And somebody panicked when they saw like the widow walk in, you know, crying. And one of the other dinner guests happened to be a therapist. And 
she pulled me aside and I was crying and I said, I, I don't know what this is. I, I think I might be depressed. And she looked at me and she's like, Melissa, this is grief. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, Melissa, the idea to me is so preposterous that we could lose the love of our life or even yeah. a, a, a spouse with whom we had problematic dealings. And then two weeks later, we're supposed to be happy. It's so preposterous, isn't it? When you think yeah, about I mean, it? Yeah. And the whole idea of what we're supposed to be. And I mean, that also speaks to the passage I just read there. You know, uh, it, it is what it is, grief. <laughs> <laughs> a truer statement has never been spoken. And, you know, the reason I value uh your book, many books in the grief world is that um, because they get read by not just people in the midst of grief, maybe we'll get wiser about how to respond to people in grief. Um, you know, the first layer is people in grief feel feel some resonance and feel like, oh, someone else has had that experience. But I hope that eventually that kind of works its way out. Um, I I hope so. I think that's the direction we're heading in. I, we're, I sure, we're I sure hope so too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's time for our first break. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. There's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Melissa Gould, you can go to www.widowish.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. <laughs> 
Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Melissa Gould, the author of Widowish. And Melissa, before the break, we were kind of talking about the weird assumptions or wrong assumptions people make about someone in in grief. And uh, I'm smiling because uh, you started dating someone sooner than I did. I was I was at about a year and a half. Um, but uh-huh. still, the reactions people had to that were really strange. <laughs> but oh, yeah. I can, I can kind of understand that. But this this one paragraph from um, from your book, from when you first brought your um, the person you were dating to a party, you said the first time I brought Marcos to a party, almost nine months after Joel died, a woman I knew from the neighbor's neighborhood pulled me aside and said, you're here on a date? Wait, when did your husband die again? And just the tone of that, you captured that sort of, how could you tone? No one would say, how could you? But it's it's so difficult because already that's a very complicated thing at least for me there was there was a complication in it and the only people that helped me with the complication was other people who who had lost a partner well Uh, it's so interesting because i mean there really is a double standard because if i had been a widower let's say a man who had lost his wife and had shown up to a party like, you know, nine months later, people would have been relieved, (laughs) relaxed, (laughs) excited. Most likely, maybe not at two months, but at nine, probably so. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So there I was. um, And it really did. I mean, it was, it was so fraught for me to even be seen with that man who, who became my boyfriend and we're still together. Um, but it was a really, it, it was sort of like a coming out and it was terrifying for me because I expected to be met with judgment and in fairness. And in that chapter, I go on to say there were plenty of people who were thrilled and relieved and excited for me. But I think um, the overriding factor was, and in some ways continues to be like, well, that was fast. You know, and and all of that really played into this idea um, of also being widowish, that I wasn't doing widowhood correctly because I already had found somebody else. And and the biggest misconception about that is that because I found Marcos and because um, we fell in love, that I was somehow over Joel, or that it was like this idea that oh no, Melissa's fine now; she's with Marcos. You and know, that couldn't that's, be further from the truth. Right. That so stood out because um, there's reactions all across the board. And you also don't want people to be like, oh, I'm so happy for you and feel as if you, grief is over. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, or to feel like you divorced the other person. I actually had someone say to me when I was thinking about um, dating again, because I contemplated mm-hmm. it for a while. And she said, well, I was talking, it was a friend, I was talking to her in the car, I remember where we were on the freeway. And she said, "Um, you know, if you're going to date somebody else, you're going to have to divorce her. (gasps) And I just, I sat in stunned silence. 
um, because that was I'm absolutely. Stunned. You were even hearing that. That that was not even a possibility, right? Yeah, that, that is really heartless and, and so misunderstood. I, like I think, I think it was mostly misunderstanding. Yeah. It was that somehow she had no model for carrying both, and right. I was I was still in the midst of developing both for sure. Yeah. But, um, oh wow. Yeah, that was that was. Um, I mean, in a way, it's she said it out loud, and there I got to grapple with it as a result, right? Instead of just thinking, "What are people thinking?" That was sort of right. the worst thing I could hear. <laughs> I, I went mean, up yeah, from that's there. Pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty bad. But, but the other thing that comes to my mind, and I wondered if you. Um, had any experience of this i felt as if i had been immersed in that loss it had been the center of my existence for a year and a half at the time everyone else had gone had dipped in and out and i mm -hmm. actually felt like i had i was further along somehow not that it's linear but there are ways that i had had to sit with all these questions about what my life was going to be now and everyone else was still you know crying when they saw the picture of her on their refrigerator, right? It was a very different yeah. experience. Did you did you have any of that? Well, what struck me is that I was not the only person who lost Joel. Like I was very, um, for lack of a better word, I was very selfish in my grief, meaning I couldn't see beyond my experience. Right. And also that of my daughter. But um, my best friend and I were on the phone one day and, and, you know, she called me and said something like everybody in the neighborhood has seen me cry. I was crying today at the stop sign in my car. And I said, what were you crying about? <laughs> and she said, Joel. And I was like, really? And she said, you know, you're not the only one who's lost him. And that really stuck with me because <laughs> it's, I, she was right. You know, like, like the loss hit everybody very hard. Um, and I didn't, I couldn't consider that un until she and I had that conversation um, that was so strange to me, but she was absolutely right. And in some ways that made it easier. My grief became a little bit easier to manage knowing that, you know, it, I'm not the only one who lost him. He had a full life. He had a lot of friends. We had a lot of friends um, in common and um, family. And it wasn't just my loss. It was a loss for everyone. But so I could imagine early, early on, it's, it's very hard, to, very early. It's hard to hear a thing like this. You can't even take it in because in my mind, early grief is pretty selfish if we want to use that word. You mm -hmm. know, we need to dive into ourselves. So it must have been fairly good timing that that could you could take that in and say oh gosh that's true uh, you know yeah I don't remember the timing but I would it, it actually gave me some some comfort you know like it, it actually helped me to hear I can that. imagine that you know for one thing uh to know that you're the person you've lost that was so important to you was also important to other people. It means he's yep. kind of with all of you uh, yep. together. That's exactly but right. I, I think that's a natural um, 
invitation to talk about being a parent in grief. Uh, at the oh, time, yeah. at the time, my wife died at a fourteen-year-old and two and a half. Um, oh wow! So you know, the older one was in the same range as your daughter, um, mm-hmm. and I guess I would say, looking back, they both made grief a little bit harder because I had to stay focused at times maybe I wouldn't have, but also mm-hmm. made grief more doable in the sense that I had things to do. <laughs> you know, sort of a paradoxical um, paradoxical aspect to that. How was that for you now being, uh, well, I'd love for you to just talk a minute and then share the part about being an only parent because yeah. it captured a lot of what I just said. But um, well, what, yeah, what can you I mean, say about that? Gonna, yeah, well, it's, you know, our daughter, Sophie, is an only child. And again, playing like the what if game was like, well, what if we had more kids? It may have made her grief easier because then she would not have been the only one, the only daughter in the family or the only child in the family to lose their father. Um, And if she had a sibling, perhaps, um, you know, she, it would have been easier for me because they would have had each other to share the experience and she would have somebody other than me to come to with how she was feeling. You know, 13 is such a tender age. Um, and it was, it was rough. And, and because she's an only child, um, I sort of coined this phrase or this idea that, that I was suddenly an only parent. Um, and I could read that, that little section if you That, that would be great. I, okay. I love for you to, I really am glad people get to hear the book a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, I love it. Thank you. Okay. Um, if I could barely manage dinner without Joel, how was I going to do anything? And more importantly, how was I supposed to raise Sophie on my own? I worried over my ability to give her the skills to be a well-adjusted, happy, and successful person. How was I going to be the one to guide her in choosing the right friends, the right kind of life partner, the right profession? Where was the guarantee that she would be able to function in the world and be fulfilled, productive, and again, happy? I was left with this precious being who had lost the most important male figure of her entire life, who made her feel loved and special and important, and he was gone. Sophie was an only child, I was now an only parent. I did not have the luxury of co-parenting with my husband. I was a full-time parent, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by myself. It all seemed daunting. After 13 years with Joel by my side, I did not have the confidence that I would be able to raise our daughter alone and be good at it. You know... Having a good partnership, I, I really got the sense of your relationship before Joel died of being a very, very good partnership. You really were oh, doing it you. together. Um, and I resonated with that too. I really felt with my partner. And um, it's can you do it well? And there's... Can, what do I do now? I'm I'm exhausted. I'm grief stricken, and I have to figure out what we're going to eat. You know, it's also the yeah. smaller things, isn't it? Um, well, that's that- the thing that I found really. It's like it's when you consider all of the decisions you make all day long about your 
child, your children. Um, it's, it's never ending. I mean, Sophie, you know, she was 13. She's now 21. I still spend all my time <laughs> consumed with like, well, what I have a 40 year old you know, that doesn't really end. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and changes. the truth is, Cheryl, yeah, the truth is, Cheryl, like, you know, as a parent, you know, even when your partner is, is still with us, you know, you, you are a parent 24 seven. I mean, that doesn't stop, but I don't have somebody to share the responsibility with. Mm-hmm. And that is the part that feels daunting. I mean, even as you were saying, it's like the little things, like, should we order pizza tonight? Like that's, like nobody to bounce that off with, you know, or, or <laughs> should I, should I make an appointment um, with a teacher to talk about this? Or should I allow her to go to that slumber party? Or should we, you know, go to the beach or the mountains uh, on spring break? Like just silly, like just the mundane aspects of, of life um, to not have somebody to share that with like it, it's funny because in some ways the big stuff was easier with the little stuff especially when Sophie was younger that would really do me in I mean I have a hard time making decisions anyway so <laughs> although you've um, made a lot you had to make a lot of really tough decisions in in the midst of trauma so you're capable of it that's for sure that's yeah. for sure thank you um, <laughs> but, but you know it's I I wish that Joel was here. And, you know, I always say that, like, I I have such a supportive and loving group of friends and family, and they're all there for me, you know, which has been such a gift. But it's different. They're they're not Sophie's parent. Um, Even my boyfriend, who, you know, has been around, he's been in the picture for a while. um, It's very different. Sophie's not his child. He loves her, cares about her, but he's not vested in the way that I am. And... It's, and I, it's I guess challenging. It, yes, and and also um, every you know every event that person isn't there for is a joy for the child and also a grief for you and for That's the child. Such a great way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I it's never that. one thing again. Right. Yeah. Um, that's you know we when when I married my second wife who I've been with now for a long time like 23 years or something um, we put you know a picture of my first wife on the table with a picture of her dad they died within a brief period of each other and you know it's never just and all the people who'd supported us as she was dying were there at the mm-hmm. wedding you know it's oh. not it's it's not a one way experience nothing uh you know that was even a wedding for me right but it yeah it, um that's always present do you find that as well oh i always talk about the presence of an absence and and also the absence of a presence um that's constant that that's yeah i mean and and i also think about all of the things that joel has missed and will miss Um, you know, I now almost on behalf of Sophie, am grieving the things that he's going to miss. She doesn't necessarily know at 21, the things her dad would have said or, or been like in her life these past seven years, but I do, you know, I have a sense of, of, of what he has missed out on and. And how he might've responded to it because you knew him adult to adult so well. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that just I find heartbreaking. In fact, when Sophie turned 21, 
it really hit me hard because it's such a milestone birthday. And I can only imagine what Joel would have been like watching his, his little baby girl who he adored um, turn into like this amazing young woman. And Joel really was a very active and engaged father. He was not like a weekend kind of dad. He was fully present as often as he could be. Um, and the loss is, is really like, I feel it again, because I understand it in ways that Sophie may not. Absolutely. That, that makes so much sense to me, as you can imagine. Yeah. You know, but it's, but it's still, I mean, maybe I, I, I like to say my capacity for joy went up too. My capacity for sorrow went up and my capacity for joy kind of neck and neck. Um, That's such <laughs> a nice thought. I, I don't. It's. I don't know that that's that everyone would say that, but that was what became true for me. Because whatever oh. kind of thing I was holding out against, you know, self protection or whatever, it didn't seem to be worth it anymore. <laughs> you know, right, if stuff can so happen anyway. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. And did you go through? Um, you know, I, I interviewed someone once who had, uh, I think a one and a half year old, uh, no, two year old, her husband had died when the baby was one. And she was saying, will she be okay? You know, <laughs> kind of. And at that point, oh. I had adult kids. And I said, absolutely, if you're honest, and you keep talking, you know, I sort of had some experience of that. But did you wonder about that? Um, will she be okay or will... Oh, I'm always worried. I, I worry about that still. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, be okay? it's a natural parental worry, but then add having being a kid who's lost a parent, sometimes that can get very loud. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's that's what I mean. When I say like as an only parent, that, those are the things I worry about specifically. Like, will she be okay in the long run? <laughs> Oh, that deserves a little more time. Let's take our break and then come back to that in a minute. Okay. So during this break, listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Post page. And to find Melissa Gould, you can go to www.widowish.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. 
You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Melissa Gould, the author of Widowish. And before the break, Melissa, we were talking about that question, will she be okay? I had two she's, will they be okay? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it can be so plaguing, um, you know, even though in my case, um, they had dealt with, you know, a, a long experience of illness they were showing their resiliency in certain ways, but child resiliency is so different. And right. having some space to think they'll be okay as adults if we just keep going, I didn't have complete faith in that uh, at the time, because how can you know, for one thing. But, but also, I didn't lose a parent. You know, I didn't know how. And honestly, the people I see in parent, in, in therapy, that lost a parent, are mostly people who weren't allowed to talk about the person and, you know, kind of the closed book situation. So that was the biggest part of what was, was injured in them. Right. And that wasn't going to be true of my kids. So I wonder how that was for you that will she be okay? How did you, how did you navigate that? Well, I think I, I started to say, I feel like I'm still navigating that. I still worry so much. Um, but I I do know that I have always made it okay to talk about Joel um, often. And I bring him, I mean, I would say every day there's a conversation about Joel. I still have his photos up all over the house. And um, in fact, my sister was visiting once after Joel had died. It was maybe like, you know, years later, like three or four, maybe even five years after Joel had died. And she was visiting and she was walking around the house and she said to me, you, you've done such a good job of keeping Joel alive. And that meant everything to me because that's how I want Sophie to feel that Joel may not be here with us physically, but that his presence is felt, his pictures are still up. We still talk about him. We laugh about mm-hmm. him. Um, I think that is is crucial to both of us and to her healing. And and even though she and I did grieve very differently, where I was much more like open and vocal about the loss, um, she really kept it close to the vest. And mm-hmm. I think that maybe is like a, a teenage thing. Um, mm-hmm. Again, 13 is a very sensitive age. I think you said one of your daughters was 14. Right. I mean, those teenage years can be rough, even with both parents around. <laughs> yes. You yes. Know, so, um, but I think that, you know, she survived all of that. And and also, and I, I write about this in my memoir, Widowish, that um, I really insisted that Sophie get into therapy um, very soon after Joel died. And we were sitting there together and I was going on and on and I was like sobbing and and the therapist kind of let me finish my, you know, my soliloquy. And um, she turned to Sophie and she said, you know, I don't usually share much about myself in this office, but I do want to tell you that I also lost my dad when I was 13. Mm. And I didn't know that. And um, 
I am so glad that she shared that because oh it was my one gosh, one hundred percent. Yeah, because it showed Sophie that this loss is tragic and also survivable. You know, and because yes. Sophie wasn't sharing a lot of her grief and her feelings with me, that really opened a window for her that I was so grateful for. I still am that somebody was able to share their experience with her, and it made that's it so interesting. Difference. The my oldest child, who was fourteen at the time, is is pretty transparent as a person. She she's mm -hmm. pretty pretty big sharer. And recently, I've actually mentioned this on the show before, but it bears repeating. Recently, she was talking about what she took from that experience that ha she's made use of in her life, mm -hmm. um, which I wasn't thinking in those terms at first. Even though, isn't that weird? Because this whole thing I do is about. Um, going forward from loss, making something out of it, transforming as a result, you know, but right. I never heard my kids talk about that. She said, I know life is precious. I don't wait to do things that are important to me. I know it, it is vitally important to show up for people in grief. I know, you know she just listed a bunch of things that she had um, positively taken from that time in her life. Um, wow. which really blew me away, to be honest, because oh, we worry, yeah. right? We're not thinking, what is she going to make of this? I think that with other people, <laughs> but, right. but I hadn't, I hadn't really, and I see how it comes out in both of them differently for the one who was so much younger because it got processed differently, but still it yeah. shows in their lives. Now they're the first ones people call when something bad happens uh, they're good listeners, you know, all these qualities that come out of learning to go forward from grief. So I hope yeah, that's Yeah, I mean, there are lessons to be learned, you know, and, and uh, I'm always like grateful when I hear Sophie like refer to something or remember something that she experienced in those early days. It's, you know, it's, it's I, I know sometimes I just feel like, okay, I did okay. She's doing okay. <laughs> it sounds that way. I would love to have you um, share another little piece from the book, which, you know, if we had another hour, we'd talk maybe more deeply about what to say and not to say and all that. But I feel yeah. this, this little section captures some of that, like how to just show up and, you know, what, what grievers want and don't want a little bit. Could you share that part of the book? Sure. Okay. Um, okay. I could own the fact that I was now the town widow, but what I couldn't take was everyone's projections and assumptions. People knew about me, so they thought they knew me. They thought they knew my story. They didn't. They didn't know my suffering or Joel's. They didn't know that I felt like I was grieving long before Joel had even died, that I was grieving before I even knew I was grieving. It's common for widows to feel like they are the ones who need to comfort those who are trying to comfort them. I wish I could offer suggestions of the appropriate things to say, but the truth is, I don't know. Grief is personal and private. For me, I just wanted the acknowledgement. I'm so sorry would usually suffice. And depending on the person, I didn't necessarily want much else. 
I didn't want to make small talk or hear about their 85-year-old aunt who just died and their weak attempt to make their situation relatable to mine. Nor did I want a hug. Some people got it just right. Like the time I was doing Clooney and I saw a woman from the neighborhood who hikes there daily. We aren't friends, but we've known each other for years. She saw me crying, sniffling, working my way up the hill. She was coming toward me in the opposite direction. I didn't want to stop, but I saw her sigh when she saw me. She simply reached out and squeezed my arm as we passed each other. There was no pretense, no over-the-top outburst. My situation was sad, unbelievable, hard to fathom. And her simple, silent acknowledgement was enough. I find that really, really beautiful. Those moments when someone just does the right thing, uh, which, of course, they have to proceed with a little bit of confidence because they don't know if it's going to be the right thing. (laughs) There's no way to to know. But when that lines up, isn't it just like uh, water in the desert a little bit or, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's true what I say, like, you know, people are always asking, well, what, what should people say? Or, you know, what should I say? I just heard somebody's father just died or this, that. And I was like, you know, I just, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, grief really is personal and private. Those are the things that for me were enough, like a simple silent acknowledgement, like the one I just read, um, just I'm so sorry for me was enough. I, mm. I I didn't like the idea that people were scared or nervous or would see me and burst into tears. You know, like that happened a lot because people were, were putting themselves in my shoes. Um, and I really was, when I'd say the town widow, I feel like people were just kind of projecting onto me yes. their own worst fears about the lives that they were living, you know, and, and, and they weren't based in reality. They were just like, Oh my God, if this could happen to somebody in our community, it could happen to anyone. Right. Uh, this is coming to mind a couple of months ago. I, I interviewed someone who had lost their child. And mm. um, one of the things that stood out was that a, a close friend said to her, I've been trying to imagine how you must be. Uh. And the the impact of that to me was so deep because everyone says, I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person was really trying to join, you know, um, I've been trying to imagine. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know what to know. say to that, Cheryl. What did you make of it? <laughs> um, well, I felt that she was, I, I feel that's the heart of empathy when someone uh. actually tries to. Yeah. That's put really put themselves in your shoes again timing it was perfect mm-hmm. timing for that person you know right. I um i i imagine that i would have appreciated that at certain points uh someone really trying to find their way into what i was actually experiencing instead of all those projections you were talking about right right um mm-hmm. i don't know how do, how does it strike you it strikes me as like not particularly sensitive, but I, I hear what you're saying. That's the thing. I think people really scramble. They want so badly to feel like they have reached you with yeah. their sympathy or empathy or, and I didn't, I mean, this for me, 
I didn't want any of that. I don't know what I wanted. I know what I wanted, what I just, what I just well, read, which is just uh, like a, like a simple acknowledgement. Simple acknowledgement. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also that was a ways in. So that's relevant. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm struck by, we don't have much time to talk about it, but at first you didn't want to talk to the other widows, you know, right. <laughs> stay away from me. And then uh, at some point you did and, and, um, did your widowish groups right or meetings? I did, and that was you know so the whole experience of like I like I said earlier during our conversation was like I felt selfish in my grief, and I realized like once I opened up about it, um, definitely with that widow group that I created with a, a friend of my, or a, another widow who became a very close friend of mine, um, and I write about that in the book because it's sort of funny. I didn't even want to meet her, and she was mm -hmm. sort of persistent. But once I started the widow group with her, once I started writing about it and then hearing other people's stories and experiences, I have found such comfort in this community. Um, and it's really been essential, I think, to my healing. And that's what you offer in your book, because um, there are actually a lot of young widows. There were before COVID, um, mm -hmm. but it's such an unrecognized experience and so i really want to appreciate you for being as open and, and raw and transparent in telling your story as you were thank you so much for the book thank you so much cheryl this has been great oh good uh if you want to find melissa gould and her book you can go to www.widowish.com next week i'll have mindy corcoran after her son and father were murdered by an anti-Semitic extremist. She founded Seven Days Make a Ripple Change the World, an organization dedicated to creating bridges across differences. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.